back. He's been in South Africa for the past several weeks. Um, his father had a, a series of strokes a while back, and so he was back there with them. Unfortunately, his better half did not return with him, but remember to keep Talita, his wife, in prayer as they f uh, finish up some immigration things, and she will hopefully be over here um, th this fall. So uh, let's continue to keep them in prayer. And then the Parkers and Beakleys, it's good to see you guys made it back. Nine kids on vacation. You guys look pretty good getting through all that and back, so we're excited to see everyone here. As we've mentioned several times, we'll be starting in a couple weeks on Genesis 1 through 11. Um, before we get there, we're going to take a couple weeks and look at the topic of worship. Malachi, by now hopefully you've found it uh, in your Bibles, the last book of the Old Testament. There is not really a whole lot that we know about the prophet Malachi himself. In fact, there's well, about the only thing we know is that his name means my messenger. That he, Though the prophecy is quoted fairly often in the New Testament, any reference to Malachi himself, really any extra material Malachi is not known. So we, we know very little about Malachi. As it comes to the end of the Minor Prophets, you're familiar at all with your Old Testament history. We'll get just a quick overview so you can kind of get the context of where we're at. The beginning of the Minor Prophets start in about 800 B.C., so we're talking uh, 9th century B.C. in the, the 800s in that, in that time frame. And this before the Babylonian captivity. And so the prophecies kind of start with these minor prophets of warning the people of Israel. And as you work through the prophets, you have the Babylonian captivity, you have the exile, you have the Persian Empire that comes in, you have the exiles return to Jerusalem. So by the time we get to Malachi, we're about 400 years later, roughly, than the beginning of the minor prophets, and we're about 400 years before the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And so that is the context in which we find Malachi. So through the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, the people have, have returned from Babylonian captivity, have come back to Jerusalem. Persia has allowed them to set up as kind of a vassal state, and so they're experiencing more freedom than they did with Babylon in order to return to some of their customs and worships the way that they have in the past. Through Nehemiah, you remember the, the walls have been rebuilt, the, much of the city has been reestablished, the temple has been rebuilt. And then you have Ezra, if you remember, as they kind of start to incorporate worship back into the life of, Re uh, back, the life of Redeemer, and back into the life of Israel. And so this is the context now in which Malachi is speaking, is people now have, have made it through this sort of tumultuous time of their history, and there's sort of a new comfort level that has settled in. They're sort of comfortable with their situation, where they're at, they're comfortable with calling themselves the people of God, and there's not a lot of danger in that at this point in their history. And so that is the context in which we find Malachi speaking. One nice thing about preaching a book like Malachi compared to Luke is in my study this week, you're able to every day sort of start by reading through the book a couple times. It just takes a few minutes, and you can get a better overall scheme. When we're going through Luke, we didn't necessarily, studying, couldn't really start each week of reading the entire book. That's a long, a long book there. With Malachi, I think in the end, if I were to boil it down to what the main primary message that he is getting across to the people, it would be this, and that's that it matters how you worship God. It matters how you worship God. They've become comfortable 
in their situation. They've become comfortable calling themselves the people of God, and they've become comfortable in just being very careless in their worship of God. And he's going to call them back to a proper and a right way of worship. And he's, he, as you go through, he, he does it in three different ways. First, thinking of worship in just sort of an individual type of level. Think Romans 12, if you would, that offering yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. As it closes, what is your spiritual worship to do so? And so it speaks about the way they live and conduct themselves. It speaks about then at a second level, and that is how they conduct themselves with one another, within the family. And talking about covenant faithfulness, husband and a wife, and, and, and are they being faithful and loving? And the way that they think about children, bring children into this world, as God would say, that, that he is bringing them together in order that they might bring up godly offspring. And then how they treat the sojourner, the foreigner, the poor, those outside. It all says something about their conduct, their life of worship. And then finally, the third, which we most often think of and which our text this morning most directly deals with, is the idea of corporate worship, the people of God gathered together. Sort of that, that routine of life and, and both individual worship that then the culminates in coming together in, in corporate worship. The heartbeat of the life of the church, of that Sabbath type of principle, that weekly joining together for rest, for, for celebration, for festivity, to make much of our God, to reorient our hearts and our minds around the things of the Lord. This is the pattern of worship. And this is what Malachi then is addressing And he's telling them, it matters how you worship God. You'll see the structure of the book. Just a couple more notes before we jump into the sermon, me itself. The the structure of the book is sort of structured around six different questions or disputes. You might have heard Adam, as he read the text uh, for us this morning, hit a couple of them. So Malachi sets it up this way. It's an, an oracle from God, spoken through Malachi to Israel. Oracle has the idea, it literally means burden. So it's a weighty, a heavy word. Like you need to be careful as you listen to this. There's typically judgment attached with it, as there is in Malachi. So it comes from God through Malachi. So it's Malachi's voice, and yet it is the words of God that we hear. And as Malachi sets it up, it is is God speaking, and then he responds with a question or a dispute. And this is the voice of the people of God arguing. You see it right there as it starts out in verse 2. It says, as the Lord say, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And then based on that question, then, Malachi speaks the words of the Lord in response. And so the, the hearts of the people are, are turned to where everything that is said to them, they are trying to defend themselves, they're trying to justify themselves, or they are turning questions that would question God's justice, God's power, God's faithfulness to the covenant. And so around these questions then, in this theme of worship and how you live your life before God, how you approach God corporately, how you live before him as a living sacrifice then, Malachi then builds around these questions in this theme. 
So this morning we're going to look basically just at chapter 1. I'll make a few references outside of chapter 1. As we look at our approach to God, individual and corporate worship, how we are approaching God, I'm not going to spend a ton of time, I will a little bit, but not a ton of time once we get into it dealing with the exact content of what the people here in in, um, Jerusalem were doing, because I think it so quickly makes the jump to application in our hearts and our lives in this moment. People who are comfortable in their situation, comfortable calling themselves the people of God, and comfortable with just being totally careless in worship. It's in that context, then, that hopefully we'll hear it and make applications individually, corporately, together. I want to look at, at, at three different things. First will be the character of lifeless worship. That'll be mainly in verses 6 through 14. What is the character of lifeless worship? And then the second we'll deal with together, and that is the root and the remedy to lifeless, lifeless worship. The root and the remedy to lifeless worship. So number one, the character of lifeless worship, number one, it is thoughtless. You really see that through that, the, the, whole, the whole prophecy, and hopefully you saw it through that introduction that Pastor Adam read, um, chapter one that Pastor Adam read for us just a few moments ago. But there's just very little attention and thoughtfulness given to how they worship. I guess I should step back. When I say it matters how we worship God, I hope you, you're hearing it this way. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about like a, a style of, of music or a length of a song or instruments. Or, I'm not talking about specific little things like that. I'm talking about a heart and a life of how we approach God and then that we are obedient within the elements, the means of grace that God gives us for worship in a thoughtful way. So, this isn't like a sermon against a certain type of music or something. But the character of lifeless worship, it is thoughtless. It is worthless religious activity. (laughs) Just kind of that showing up and going through the motions, with very little thought to what you're doing. It, it, would, it, it is coming to a service that is all about God. Everything informed about it is about God, about who He is, about our redemption in Him, about how we approach Him. And walking through that service, barely even thinking about God. That's the thoughtless worship. You see that clue right up front as, as they would be approached by Malachi in verse um, 6. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? They're so thoughtless in their worship of God that even they can't sense how far they've drifted away. Like, we're going through, we're doing the things, we're, we're doing all the stuff. 
How is our worship thoughtless? How is it, not, how is it just going through the motions? I think easy application can be made for us in our thoughtlessness that we sometimes give to worship. Of just sort of showing up, drifting through, leaving, and thinking, I was never engaged. I might never did get engaged in what was going on. The character of lifeless worship, it is thoughtless. Secondly, it is lazy. So pushing it further than lifeless, it is lazy. That is, it is careless. It draws the minimal effort. <laughs> Whatever takes the, the very least from me, whatever is the minimal effort, that's what I'm bringing to worship. It's just lazy. You see in the way he asked those questions, you remember he asked about, if you were to bring something to your father or to a master, later he talks about the governor, you're thoughtful in the gift that you would bring to them. That's an important person. And so I'm thoughtful, I'm careful, I'm, I'm making the effort and the sacrifice to bring it. But you're approaching holy God, and you're coming thoughtlessly, and you're coming as lazy as can be. You, if you look down in the passage a little bit, in verse, uh, I'll begin reading verse 9. It says, Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you with such a gift from your hand that he will show favor to any of you, says Lord of hosts. Um, it's a little further up than I want to start. Let's start in verse 12. It says, But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. So again, talking about their disobedience and worship, it says, But you say, What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. What a weariness this is. And snort at it. Kind of that idea, like, are we still talking about this? This is wearing me out. I just, I don't, you're just so lazy in your approach that it wears you out having to put any effort into it. Have you, for me, I I see this in my life. (laughs) We have a a house that's a bit of a fixer-upper. So we're always doing little household projects. And... You know how you start a household project, like a lot of creative energy and like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And you're kind of motivated and think you're going to pull off something really special. And so you, you know, you set up, you're ready to go. You get into the project and like nothing goes how it's supposed to. Like 14 trips to Home Depot later, you, you hate the shelf that you started and you're so sick of your wife showing you pictures of Pinterest and what Chip and Joanna Gaines did, and if you could just, you know, make it look like that. And so by the end, you kind of have that, like, you know, you're done. You're not even sanding it, priming it. You're just, like, slapping whatever lumpy paint you have in the basement on it, and you're walking away. Like, are, can we be done with this? And that sort of, that snorting, that idea of, like, as you go to Home Depot one more time. It's that sort of approach they come to worship with. They're thoughtless, and as soon as they're pushed on paying attention to what they're doing in their life before God and their approach to God, it's, this is wearing me out. 
Can we please just move on from this? It is lazy. Thirdly, character of lifeless, lifeless worship. It is selfish. It is selfish. It becomes more about you, your felt need at the moment, than what God has prescribed. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. We'll move back to the, the middle of verse 6. It says, O priest who despised my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon your altar. Upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? It's that idea of they're not going to go giving their best lamb in worship. They're not going to find, if you're familiar with Old Testament law, a, a a young goat, a young lamb that would be without blemish that they can bring before an offer. They're bringing like the, you know, crazy goat with rabies that's blind out in the corner. That's the one they're bringing an offering. It's totally self-centered and selfish. What's the easiest for me? I'm thoughtless in it. I'm careless. I come. I just bring what is the, the lowest possible thing that can be asked of me and I bring this lamb that no way is honoring but just to walk through the motions I'll give you my blind goat if you turn over to chapter 3 you see this in as it talks about robbing God in chapter 3 verse uh, we'll begin reading maybe in verse 6 it says for I the Lord do not change therefore you O children of Jacob are not consumed from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts but you say how shall we return will man rob God that you are robbing me but you say how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring your full tithe into the storehouse, and there may be food in my house. Even in their giving, in this part of their worship and giving, they're being selfish. They're not giving God, the God who has given them everything, entrusted everything to them. They're being selfish in how they give back to the Lord. Now's a good time to make a point about giving. You're always hesitant to do that at church. But we're in a spot right now, Redeemer, where there's nothing specific up for grabs where I'm like, I'm hitting you for it because I want more of your money right now. The Lord's been kind and gracious to us. I speak of it in terms of your personal worship before the Lord. We don't preach tithe 10% of each aspect of your life. We've kind of we, we move from that in the New Testament, although I think it's a good principle of a percentage of what you have to give to the Lord. What the Lord is continuously says is that you're sacrificial, obedient, and joyful in your giving. That it's not selfishly, if, if my budget is met just the way I want it, if I have enough of a safety net, and if all my entertainment and amusement needs are met, if there's a little bit left, yeah, I'm happy to give that to the Lord. 
but instead turning it as a priority in your life. Whether it's giving to your church or, or investing in others, investing in mercy, well, whatever that might be, that that becomes a priority in your worship and not, again, just that afterthought, that kingdom living, what God commands and prescribes, would be first in priority. So it's thoughtless, it's lazy, it is selfish, finally, it is disobedient. And we see this all throughout. Chapter 2, if you look, it kind of sums it up as he speaks to Levi. The Levite says, true, in, true in step, instruction, chapter 2, verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Again, later in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, he, he hits the same thing of just their blatant disobedience in worship. They're finding a new much less, something that takes much less effort. And that's how they're worshiping and approaching God. The character of lifeless worship. I think we all see this in our hearts and our lives at times in a personal sense. You find that just laziness. You find that lack of thoughtfulness. You find that selfishness where I'm not even going to wake up three minutes earlier. I'm not even going to write the prayer request down. Just a way that we love and serve and worship our God. There can be a laziness. There can, all of that can creep into it. And so let's jump back to verses 1 through 6 then, and then we'll see the root and the remedy of lifeless worship. If this is what characterizes Israel at this time, of people who are comfortable in their circumstances, comfortable calling themselves the people of God, and yet comfortable giving zero attention to worship, what then is the root of that? What is the remedy? These will cover together because really the root, if you correct that, then that becomes the remedy. All right? So as we go through it, you'll see the root and the remedy. There's three of these. First, the root of lifeless worship is failure to grasp the sovereign love of God. Failure to grasp the sovereign love of God. The remedy then would be seeing, believing, and celebrating the sovereign love of God. It's kind of surprising when you think of this burden, this oracle that the Lord is placing upon him. How does he start? Verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Right there, those four words wrap up the covenant. Wrap up the motivation, the gratitude, all that it is that is calling us to worship. I have loved you. That should be the remedy right there to our self-absorption, to our laziness. He has loved us before time. He has loved us in a sovereign manner. He has loved us by sending the Son 
He thinks here, he says, I have loved you. I have set you apart. I have made a covenant with you. I have been faithful to that covenant all along the way. Everything about our relationship is wrapped up in this. I love you. But he gets more specific and more pointed with his love, and he does so with this question. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? I think they are sitting there, and God says, I love you, but they they look around, they think, well, okay, we're comfortable with our life, but still, other nations seem to have it better than we do. I come to worship, I do what you say, and it's not like it makes my life great. You know, I'm not feeling anything from this. How have you loved us? Show me. You'll see later in the book, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, they're constantly asking, if you love us, then how come the evildoers, how come all of these other nations seem to be prospering and thriving and we're just existing? And so he answers their question in a surprising way. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And hear the answer from the Lord. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. If you're sitting there, you're like, what kind of answer is that? (laughs) The answer to the question is in this little part. Is not Jacob Esau's brother? What is the answer to that? Yes. So you have Jacob and Esau, if you can remember. For them, this would have, they would have known exactly what was being said as it was recalled to mind. Abraham and Isaac. Isaac has his sons, Jacob and Esau. They're twin brothers. Esau is actually born before Jacob. Rebekah is their mom. Isaac is their dad. As you read through it, Esau seems like, you know, just from a worldly perspective, the more impressive of the characters. Jacob's the kind of guy, it seems to be scripture, like his best friend is his mom. And so he, he, he brings it to, he goes, how have you loved us? Well, look at Jacob and Esau. What set them apart from one another? The love of God. Sovereign, free, electing Love. Jacob was no different than Esau. Both of them, neither of them deserved God's love. Both of them deserved justice and wrath. One wasn't more impressive than the other. One wasn't, didn't merit it in some way. And so God says, I set my affection, I set my love, I set it upon Jacob. And then he uses, he he looks between them, between Esau and Jacob, and then develops that history. Esau and Edom and all that would follow after him. And then Jacob and Israel and the people of God, the ones that God has loved, that he has shown, that he has chosen, that he created this covenant for, that he entered into covenant with, that he has been faithful to, that he has promised such spiritual blessings unto. How have I loved you? With free, sovereign, unconditional, electing love. You've never merited my love, and I've loved you. You've always deserved wrath, and I loved you. 
The only reason you ever love me is because I first loved you and gave myself for you. We know now in bad it's love that's going to take him all the way to the cross, as we saw just a, uh, last week, to, to solve that riddle of the Old Testament. How can he show this love? How can he not hold sin against people and yet still may punish every sin by pouring all that punishment and all that wrath on Jesus Christ in order that you might know grace, in order that you might know love? This is the kind of love that he's talking about. Yes, there is an aspect of God's love that is tender and kind and and compassionate and gentle and warm, and we can think of finding our safety and security about that. But when he's trying to shake them out of their dullness and lifeless and worship, he points to the sovereign, unconditional, electing love of God. Love that should cause some fear, that should cause some awe. One writer says, it is the love of God that makes us tremble. Or as scripture speaks so often, it is love and grace that produces awe and righteous fear. Unconditional electing love. When he goes on to talk about Esau of I hated, again, it, it, it draws that that contrast between his gracious love. When you think of of God hating Esau, you have to think of it differently than you think of the way you might hate someone. You get in an argument and you scream, I hate you. And it's kind of a, a small, spiteful, unreasoned, prejudiced type of coloring about someone. God's holy wrath and anger and hatred is judicial. It's never capricious. It's always totally deserved. And it is always withheld by common grace at some level. So they want to turn and look, at G- look to God in the moment and feel like Persians, the kings, Babylon, everyone else seems to have it better than us. What do you mean you love us? So he turns and goes, what do I mean? I have loved you and will eternally save you. Look at Esau. Look at Edom. They're going to come to ruin. They're going to get their just reward. You seriously are looking at them and saying, well, they seem to have a better life for the next few years instead of looking back at all that I have promised and done and accomplished for you. The root of lifeless worship is a failure to see the sovereign love of God. The remedy is to see it and to believe it and to celebrate it. And that's a love that, yes, is tender and inviting, but at the same time should produce awe and honor. Secondly, the root is a failure to see the sovereign power of God. The remedy is seeing, believing, and celebrating the absolute sovereign power of God. Again, kind of going back to the same argument they keep bringing up is it seems to them that God isn't worth worshiping because he's not even making their life good enough, let alone you look at the people who have nothing to do with God and they seem to be doing great. So he would remind them in verse 5, he goes, your eyes shall see this. 
and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Not only is he great and absolutely sovereign even above you, he is great and absolutely sovereign above all nations. A failure in worship is a failure to recognize that our God is just too small. We start to just get a very myopic picture of the small slice of the world and this small slice of time that we can see and decide we know what's best. We know, we know all that should be happening right here. God seems to either not care or he's lost control. or he's saying, <laughs> He is God over all of the nations. Chapter 1 ends that way again. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Malachi, as you go through, he uses a couple other tools to help us see the sovereign power of God. One is he calls him the Lord of hosts. He calls him several times in the chapter that Adam read for us, chapter 1 here, over 20 times in the book, the Lord of hosts, that idea of that God of angel armies. That, that he stands in the heavens with a throng of angel armies ready to move. You see that contrast. Here's the God of angel armies, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And you're bringing your blind, mangy goat and just without any thought offering, oh, here's what you can have. He's saying it matters how you worship me. He also shows his power... By emphasizing the point that God does not need your sacrifice or your empty praise. Remember reading that? Chapter goes, oh, if someone would just shut the door and keep these worthless sacrifices from coming in. It's not that God needs his ego built somehow, or he, he's dependent that, that he needs your assurance that so at least walk through the motions for it. He's saying, No, I don't need your worthless sacrifices. You see that again in that call in chapter 3 of robbing God, of giving to him. It talks about that he has all that he needs. You're not giving to him because he lacks something. Giving to him because he is all-powerful and all-sovereign. And you come and you worship a God like that. The third final root and remedy is a failure to revere him as father. The remedy then is revering God as a father worthy of all honor. You see that in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. Again, there's this sort of paradox in these, these titles of Lord as as master or Lord and as father. It's a paradox we talk about often in worship that should inform our worship, that should give us a sense of awe, is that as we come, we come to a God who's altogether different and transcendent, and yet a God who draws us near and is knowable. We come to a God who is that tender, warm, and inviting father, but is sovereign, holy, powerful king. He is both of these things to us. He is Father. He is Master. 
It talks about honoring, come to him honoring the Father. I think we sometimes get just a, a single view of, of Father with God as our Father, and we should have it more of that paradox or a wider view of, yes, he's Father, and that he, there is safety and there is gentle, gentleness and warmth in the embrace of the Father, and that indeed is true. I think here again, as he is like shaking them out of their, their apathy and carelessness and worship, he's speaking in terms of he's a father who deserves your honor. I think it can be hard for us to register that sometimes because our view of, of fatherhood has, has changed a lot in the last couple hundred years. Um, Thomas Watson, as he would write, on a commentary on the Westminster Confession about, well, if you think about it, what is the major commandment of how children are to behave with their parents is honor your father and mother. The idea of reverence, of awe. Thomas Watson said, what does that mean? He asked, how are children to show honor to their parents? And he answered with a wealth of biblical text, just text completely through his answer here. But the answer is this, by a reverential esteem of their persons, inwardly by fear mixed with love, outwardly both in word and gesture. I think some of us to hear like fear and fatherhood makes us uncomfortable right off the bat. And I think it is a a, a pendulum swing again from sort of that idea of a, a father who is authoritative and distant and won't show affection and isn't involved and just sort of demands this unearned respect. Yet scripture is clear that a father is to be honored. He is to be revered. A mother is to be honored. She is to be revered. That there is an authority that, yes, part of it is getting down on the ground and playing with the kids and that affection and that warmth. And part of it also is a healthy reverence and an honor for who that person is in your life as an authority. God is saying, you don't recognize my fatherhood in your life. You don't come to me and honor me and revere me as father. There's a couple of verses, I think, that help us with this. Isaiah 66, God says this, This is the man upon whom I will smile or show that warm affection. He that is humble and contrite in spirit. He that trembles at my word. Psalm 103, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Part of recognizing that fatherhood of God is, yes, he is warm and caring and we can find comfort in his wings, but he is also deserving of our reverence and our honor. The root and the remedy. We can see the characteristics of worship. We can see them grow in our own lives. We can see them grow in our own church. But I think these are the remedies we have to turn to is to see and recognize and celebrate the sovereign love of God, not just kind of uh, an empty, happy love flow out there, but one that is purposeful and electing and caring and saving and accomplishing in its power. We understand the sovereign power of God, that he is king more than just in this little congregation. He is king over all the universe. He will do what he will to make his name great. And that he is honored as Father. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for a reminder.